You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabrieconference.com. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Nikayla Fiore Kais. Nikayla is one of the workers at the Southboro branch of Labrie, and this lecture is entitled Living with Loss. So we're asked to give titles to these lectures uh, months and I think even a year ago. So when I had originally named this lecture, um, Lost and Legos and Liturgy and Laundry seemed to sort of be the sum of my life at that point. So I think originally in the title it was Living with Legos, Lost and Laundry or something like that. Um, so these ideas sort of swam around in my head. They had a life of their own, and the title has changed several times. Um, and the titles that I have come up with might be more of just an insight into who I am and my own grieving process, but just to give you a few ideas of sort of the journey of titling this lecture, there is a few, I'll give you a few examples. So. Laundry, Legos, Liturgy, and the Lord. Sunk in sadness. Terrible, thanks for asking. Keeping up with the criers, God goes, the long valley of grief, burden of sorrows, and the list goes on. And over the past few years, I've heard many different analogies of what grief is and what it is like. Um, I've heard that grief is a wound that doesn't heal, It's like a cup of tea that if you let it steep too long, it leaves you bitter and uncomfortable. It's a burn that no one sees, and it's like being recruited for a play that you didn't audition for. All of these definitions are right in their own way. But what has become more evident to me is that grief is like a language. Just like the languages of love, there is a language for our lost which can bring coherency to our lives when things feel chaotic. One reason that I have arrived at the language of loss was that a primary thing I felt in loss was feeling muted, that I didn't have a voice and I wasn't able to communicate rightly about what I was thinking or feeling. And it has been said that language acts as a form of seeing. Giving language to grief provides some light to our troubled thoughts, feelings to our emotions, and they help us see what is true. Words provide an order to the places of our lives where we feel disordered. Giving language to our grief doesn't necessarily change that disorder, but it does hold the disorder and offer us a framework to make some sense and meaning out of things that no longer seem seem meaningless or make sense. So what I would like to do today with our time 
is just to share a bit about my own experience of grief and loss and set a table for conversation with you. And in the Libri way, we'll have time for discussion and questions at the end. So this lecture is in no way going to be a handbook for how to grieve well, and it will not answer the problem of evil. We know that grief is not linear. It is personal, specific, and complex, which means that my story won't be like your story. What has been helpful to me might not be helpful to you. But my hope is that today, this lecture will be a narrative of why learning the language of loss is essential so that you may be able to find meaning in your suffering, hope in your situation, and to hold fast to the truth that Christ will come and disperse the gloomy clouds of night and put death's dark shadow into flight. I'll say that David Paulson's book, God's Grace in Your Suffering, has been profoundly helpful in shaping some of the ideas in this lecture, and as well as just bringing some clarity and help to my internal life. So just a bit of a personal story. When I was 19 years old, my mom, Linda, was diagnosed with breast cancer. I was 19 when this happened, and I was 39 when she died in May of 2019. And for the majority of those 20 years, I was living on the East Coast in Southboro, and the rest of my family was on the West Coast in California. And it's in between those 20 years and 3,000 miles where I learned a great deal about loss and living and dying. My mother was 43 years old when she was diagnosed, and over the course of 20 years had eight subsequent diagnoses of cancer, and they had metastasized to various parts of her body with terminal cancer ending up in her brain and ending her life. And her dying should not have been a surprise because it had been expected, it had been planned, and it had been imagined for almost all those 20 years. But it still was unimaginable that she died. And sometimes death is an outright yank. It comes as a shock out of nowhere. And my experience of my mother's dying was not like this. It was more of a low-grade fever and a relentless tug towards death, always there reminding us of our own mortality and fragility. And in reflection, this relentless tug, as painful as it was, was the gift because it had given me time to indirectly learn a language of loss and to see how it was lived out by my mother. Cancer has a way of creating a paradox. It makes you want to live more fully while knowing that death is imminent. And this was very true for my mother. And her life was an example of what Francis Schaeffer called a glorious ruin. It was glorious because we have been made in the image of God, but broken by the fall. And this is where we all find ourselves. We are all glorious ruins living in a world that is both, that is a paradox, a world that is beautiful and horrifying and redemptive and fractured. Being able to learn this language and to bear witness to my mother's joys, delights, and despairs 
helps me make sense in a, simple, in a senseless time. The way my mother navigated her dying and how she viewed her death and her life gave me words to understand what David Pallison refers to as the emotions of faith. These emotions run the gamut from fear to courage, from sorrow to joy, from hate to love, and from neediness to gratitude. We all have experiences of these emotions, but many people feel guilty for having them or they feel like they are on trial and need to give a defense for having them. But part of what it means to be human is to be emotional. We are all emotional beings, and emotions don't need a defense, but they do need to, make, they do need to have a vocabulary that arc the whole of our being. The emotions of faith are communicated and named over and over in the life of the Psalms, from crying out to God in distress, questioning his goodness, but also reminding us of his holiness. The Psalms speak to our whole experience, the arc of our emotional life, while reminding us of who we are and who God is. We read in Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. This psalm helped me find a voice to my mutedness, and it gave me permission to lament as an act of worship. In the Grief Observe, C.S. Lewis writes, Grief is a long valley, a winding valley where any bend may reveal a totally new landscape. And it may be that today you find yourself looking out onto a landscape of somebody else's grief, or it may be that you are traveling this lonely, needy, winding valley of grief. But regardless of the place you find yourself, Know that there is help and comfort at the ready. Understanding that language of God is expressed in both love and loss. You are not invisible, you are not alone, and you are not stuck in your own mind. God sees you. So here is a little roadmap of what we're going to do for the next little while. We are going to look at the why give language to our grief, how to understand it, and what language to use or not use. And that is more of a practical side. So why is this important? Grieving people often feel misunderstood. And because of this, they isolate themselves and become disconnected from their communities. Loss is noisy, it is needy, disorienting, and confusing. And if you are here in this workshop today, it's most likely because you've experienced it in some way. I hate being misunderstood. It is a deep fear. Being misunderstood quickly takes me to the dark places where I can isolate, I ruminate, I project, and I quickly create a false sense of what is real. I need to be reminded several times of the truth of who I am. And we need to learn from the narrative of each other's lives 
as Dick said this morning, through our shared life together as imitators of Christ and reminders of the truth. And there are several ways to do this. But without faithful endurance and the courage to hold on and trust God when he says, fear not, we are lost in translation. David Pallison says there are countless ways to lessen the anxiety of grief. Some of these are fine in their place, but none of them will make you fearless in the face of trouble. None of them create a resilient fruit of the Spirit called endurance. None of the strategies for personal peace give you the disposition and power to love one another considerately in the small choices of daily life. None of them change the way you suffer by embedding it in a deeper meaning. None give you a reason to persevere in fruitfulness through all your days. So why do we need to learn this? We need to learn this language of loss because it gives meaning to our particular suffering. It also grows our faith, deepens our understanding of God's grace, and it produces two particular things. A courageous endurance and an empathetic love. Courage provides strength to keep moving when we feel stuck or when we face fearful things. Courage helps us shift our eyes away from ourselves to look to God in trust. This shift away from ourselves and to God helps us endure in the most uncertain times. Endurance is a purposeful abiding under what is hard and painful, but at the same time gives us the ability to consider others even when we don't feel like we can find our own way out. And this makes us more compassionate and empathetic. I find the imagery of Psalm 23 very helpful in this regard. Faithful endurance and courage act as a compass and like a guardrail, like God's rod and staff. So when you find yourself walking through the valley of the shadow of death, they they help you stay the course and give inertia where you may otherwise want to just lay down in the valley. It is this promise of Psalm 23 that reminds us that there is a progression to our grief. Though I walk through, and it will not be a linear walk, but you are moving. God's promise is that he will not that we will not end up living eternally in the valley of the shadow of death. He gives us the endurance to continue to move through. And please hear me out when I say that God is not making you suffer in order to make you grow in endurance and courage. But he does promise to be with you in it. And by trusting in this, your faith can deepen and grow in the fruit of endurance, of courage, of empathy, and love. Dr. Pauline Voss is an educator and a researcher who is recognized for her research in loss, and in particular, ambiguous loss. And this is a loss that is without any resolution. And she says that the first question she asks her patients 
when they experience loss is to say, what does this loss mean to you? By asking this question, what does loss mean to you, either to yourself or to other people, you are beginning to give shape and build a vocabulary for the loss that you have experienced. And once there is a vocabulary, there can be a conversation. And once there's a conversation, you can then courageously turn out towards others and invite them in. And this is where meaning can be found. Without a, without a vocabulary, there can be no conversation. And if there's no conversation, the grieving are left misunderstood and isolated. This question, what does it mean? What does this loss mean to you? Has been profoundly helpful in my work at Labrie with our students, but also in my personal life. To articulate what it meant to me that my mom died forced me to name what was lost. Articulating gave me the ability to put language to my particular and specific loss. I was able to say that what I lost was not just her physical presence or being mothered, but also the presence of comfort and safety, the two things that I felt like I had lost when she died. Once I could do that, I could take the loss of comfort and safety and hold them out to God and the people of God as an act of trust in his faithfulness, that he would be with me and that I was not alone. From this process, I experienced a deep reassurance of what the Gospel of John promised, that God has not left us as orphans and he will come to me. Traveling in a country where you don't speak the language can be isolating and alienating. And this has been my experience. Grief is a lonely land. Even if you are not alone, it still feels lonely. And suffering often brings a double, a double pain. There's the problem of pain itself, and then it is compounded by a second problem. And that is that well-meaning people often respond poorly to those who are suffering. And this adds further isolation and loneliness. And we're going to come back to that section at the end on the more practical side of things. Grief is particular and unique. There's no bright side, there's no solution, and it's not a problem to be fixed. But we need to be willing to recognize that we do need helpful. We need help and helpful companions. David Pallison says, our discipleship material don't often teach us much about needing help. We learn how to have a quiet time. We discover our spiritual gifts. We study good doctrine. We learn how to study the Bible and memorize scripture. These are all good things. But we don't necessarily learn how to need help. God uses significant suffering to teach us to need him. And when we need him, we find him. We've developed a very sophisticated way to not ask for help. We rise above, we avoid, we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we compartmentalize, and all of these deny and diminish our human need and longing 
for connection and for community and ultimately our need for God. God uses our specific suffering to teach us to need him. And as Palestine says, when we need him, we find him. Christians have a profound need to hear God and to experience him purposefully at work in their lives. When you hear and know that he is with you, the meaning of grief shifts. Even if nothing has changed in your situation, Again, Palestine writes, you need to hear what God says and to experience that he does what he says. You need to feel the weight and significance of what he is about. He never lies. He never disappoints, though he wisely sets sets about to disappoint our false hopes that we might be freed from our illusions. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need to fear no evil. He is with you. Goodness and mercy will follow you. This is what he is doing. God's voice speaks deeper than what hurts, brighter than what is dark, and more enduring than what is lost, and truer than what has happened. It is evident from scripture that God speaks and acts through our afflictions. And giving language to our suffering and grief can anchor our experience of loss more profoundly in God's goodness and grace, producing a faithful endurance and the courage to continue. Being able to articulate what your significant grief means gives order to your disorder, shapes your need, and it is in that need where God is present. And we can say with the psalmist, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So how do we do this? How do we understand this language? Language begins with words. And we need to build our emotional vocabulary of words that help us hold on to what is true of God and what is true of ourselves. These words bring us into conversation with the master of our sorrows, and this is where God meets you. There's a power in putting words to your wounds, to giving a name to your suffering. And Palestine gives us some helpful questions to articulate this. And I would call this a grief inventory. Often at Labrie, we have people do an inventory. Whether they come with doubts, we have them write a doubt inventory. What are things that you are doubting? This is just a helpful way to sort of take the cloudiness of what you're feeling and articulate it. And Dick often says you can't really get to your questions of doubt if you can't have a conversation with it. (coughs) And these are Paulison's questions that he gives. Where are you struggling to make sense of things? Where do you need help? Where do you need wisdom? Where do you need courage? 
Where do you need mercy? Where do you need protection? Where do you need strength? And responding to these questions, we start making it personal. And we put words of faith into the conversation. Words that bring clarity and sanity. These are questions that we are invited to ask God, and he responds to us through his word. Isaiah 41.10 is a beautiful example of this. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God, and I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous hand. This is Palestine response and reason dynamic. This is the conversation that we have with God through his word. He responds to us, and we can see that through, through his word. We need to develop a practice of reaching for and reading God's word when we find ourselves lost in our suffering. His word is his response to us. Our conversation partner in learning the language of loss is God himself. And this takes practice. And it takes practice because it's a conversation that requires us to change the way we think and the way we choose and the way we respond. Thanks to neuroscience, we now know that our brains always go first to what is familiar. And often when when we're feeling fragile, what is familiar is often a lying, accusing voice of shame, isolation, and fear. And we must change that accusing voice and speak to one another in truth. In our house, This is called Check the Facts. We, I have three children. I have twin girls who are 12 and an 8-year-old son. And we often say these words. You need to check the facts. By checking the facts, we are actively reminding each other of what is true. And we are paying attention to the truth. Pallison gives this model. He does not call it checking the facts. That was my addition. But this is a way that we can check the facts. And his book is a wonderful sort of model throughout, throughout the books of ways that we can check the facts on where we are in conjunction to looking to God. So be, And you fill it in with sort of the the answers to the questions of where are you struggling to make sense of things, this is the responses that he uses. Because it is true that blank, I am not afraid. I will not be dismayed by because, and then you fill in the blank. This is a habit of changing, going from what is familiar to going to what is true. Another way we do this in our home is we say, often, what you feel is real. But that 
feeling doesn't always tell the truth. This we use to validate that emotions are good. It is good to feel. It is right to feel anxious at times. It is right to feel afraid at times because emotions are powerful. But they don't always correspond to what is true. Validating the feeling, but we have to weigh it against the reality. Check the facts. Grief can make you scared, abandoned, and isolated. But what is real is that I am not alone or forgotten. Being able to check the facts can develop this language that brings renewal and allow space for truth to break in into our despair. These are my children, Abby, Ellie, and Noah. And we have developed a practice with our children of ending the day with the facts. It is a refrain that Eugene Peterson used every night of his parenting life. He would tell his children every night before they went to bed, God loves you. He is on your side. He is coming for you. And he is relentless. When we we remind ourselves of these things and by practicing conversations of truth we can move forward in courage and engage with others who have also experienced loss how we engage must be rooted in the truth of who God is and the realization of our need for one another Pallison says God profoundly comforts us as sufferers, strengthens us for endurance. He powerfully changes us as his sons and daughters, making us fearless and wise to help other sufferers. There is inevitably an aloneness in suffering because no one can fully enter another one's experience. But we can bear each other's burdens with love, and we can counsel each other with truth. This give and take of wise love is one of life's most significant joys. So what is this give and take of love? In book five of Harry Potter, uh, we are introduced to Thestrals. They are mythical winged horses that can only be seen by those who have witnessed death. And my experience of grief has felt like seeing the thestrals. And once you have have experienced a profound loss, you start seeing and feeling what others have seen and lived. We are not the only ones, as my mother would say. And this can develop a compassion for others who have experienced suffering. Being able to see what others have seen can produce a vocabulary for empathy that, can, that you can extend outward towards others in a loving action. Empathy is the ability to experience the feeling of another person. And this goes beyond sympathy. Empathy is feeling with people. It's about connection, perspective, and the ability to recognize someone's emotions. 
Showing empathy is a way that we can actively demonstrate the love of God and bring comfort to those who are feeling isolated by their loss. What you have experienced from God, you can give away in increasing measure to others. Empathy rooted in action can take our own experience of grief and turn it outward, turn it towards others and extend God's mercy and grace. Pelson says the way God meets us in our needs turns our faith and love into generalizable skills that meet others in their needs. The comfort that you receive from God in your particular affliction becomes helpful to others in any affliction. And in other words, he is saying that you don't have to suffer the same way to be a comfort to them. And so, what might this look like? I'm deeply grateful for the work of Nancy Guthrie, specifically in this book, What Grieving People Wish You Knew About What Really Helps and What Really Hurts. The book is comprised of stories from grieving people that she has worked with. She asked them to share the things that were especially helpful or meaningful to them in the midst of their ongoing grief. Her book primarily shows that even the smallest act of kindness, thoughtfulness, and empathy can bring a deep and lasting comfort to those who are going through loss. And her book is broken down into these seven chapters. And even if you just read her (laughs) index, it is very helpful. So what to say and what not to say. Typical things people say and what you can say instead. Assumptions we make that keep us away and why we should just simply show up. What to do and what not to do. Social media and grief. When the like button just seems wrong. Let's talk about talking about heaven and hell. And a few questions and answers. Grief is awkward. It's complicated and it's uncomfortable for those who are going through it and it's uncomfortable for those who are wanting to help. But Guthrie says, don't let the awkwardness intimidate you from engaging into the mess of someone else's life. I'm going to say that again. Don't let the awkwardness intimidate you from engaging in someone else's mess, in someone else's grief. It will be awkward to participate, but not engaging or mentioning the loss makes people feel less cared for, and what is not said is remembered much more than what was said. It is much more important to help people in their grief than to avoid being seen as awkward. Her book gives countless examples of people showing up even when it feels awkward. To the grieving, she reminds us, grief makes you feel conflicted. It gets worse before it gets better, but it's not the new normal. Your ongoing misery doesn't measure love. We want connection, but not comparison. Comparison feels like you are diminishing our loss. People need time and freedom to lament their loss in a host of different ways. Being honest about confusion and loneliness is heavy, and you have to allow for weakness. 
Refuse to measure the handling of grief against a standard that you or someone else created. And to the well-meaning helpers, she reminds us that grieving people are not going to call you if you need something. You need to figure out what they need and show up. It matters less what you say. Sorry, it matters less what you say than that you say something. Send a note in the mail. Saying things like, you'll be fine, doesn't allow space or permission to not be fine. Questions like, how are you? Make grieving feel, the grieving feel responsible for giving a progress report on how they're doing, a task which they have no training and no resource. Loss is unique and particular and specific. It doesn't, it looks different and is, and is experienced differently. One way to be loving and wise is to refrain from statements that start with, when I, well, I, what I would do, but start with, I wonder. Grieving people don't need to be told what to do or how to feel. They don't need suggestions on how to look for the bright side or what to be grateful for because often there is no bright side. Don't suggest, assume, compare, or offer up, but show up. Be present. Remember that the person in front of you is the person who has experienced the loss and they feel disconnected and they need to feel seen. And as I have said many times, grief is lonely. And when we acknowledge that life-changing events have occurred, we can start removing some of the barriers that keep us, keep the grieving people feeling isolated and misunderstood. And we can recognize these events by telling stories. The Dutch author, Isaac Denson, who wrote Babette's Feast, says, I think all sorrows can be born if you put them into a story or tell a story about them. Stories are sustaining structures. Stories are words that help us make sense of our experience and our, of our disorder and our need for order. They give space in our mind to catch up with reality and bring significance to what was lost. There is no such thing as closure. There are no five linear stages of grief. There is no such thing as moving on, but there is moving forward, knowing that what has happened is real and God has been with you. There are two questions that have sort of held my faith and hemmed me in. The first is from the Heidelberg Catechism, and it reads, What is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a comfort in the midst of suffering. As I experienced the range of emotions of faith, this question reminded me again and again that no matter how lonely or awkward or isolated I felt, the truth was that I was not my own and that I was not alone. 
for Christ is with me. He has given me his family to be reminders of his love and agents of mercy. And the second question is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it reads, What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. God's purpose is not for us to suffer. He wants us to thrive, to delight in his goodness, in his truth, and his beauty. These two questions were very much a part of my mother's theology. They shaped her life, her death, and she communicated these truths in many unassuming ways that highlighted her love for people, for her, of curiosity for her community and her creator. Living out the questions to these and living out the answers to these questions have brought comfort and purpose to my suffering, giving me a clearer sense of how to live well in this fractured world. The Gospel of Luke tells us in the tender compassion of our God, the dawn from on high shall break upon us to shine on those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. And may it be so. So, I would like to just spend some time talking to you all and taking your questions and having a discussion or of what, if you have questions, and what those that may be. Nancy Guthrie? No, the other one. David. David Pallison. P O W L I S O N. And he recently passed away, and this book is sort of his, both very personal in his own suffering. He died of pancreatic cancer, but he was sick quite a long time with other things before that. And this traces both his pastoral and personal side of living in, with suffering. And he's a prominent voice in the counseling world. Yes. What's the name of that book? God's Grace in Your Suffering. It, and as you can see... It was very helpful. <laughs> Several things spoke to me. And it's very readable, and she asked some very good questions of just both making you articul- articulate the feeling that you have in order to communicate that. Um, I think it's just a very simple thing, but it is not something we do. Yeah. just, you know, failed miserably. Um, I don't exactly know where I'm going with this, but 
Um, just a word of encouragement, I guess. Um, my father died of pancreatic cancer when I was eight, and um, I'm sure everybody knew that he was dying except me. Mm-hmm. So when I came home and found out he had died, it was quite a shock. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't shed a tear for months and, um, you know, was very angry at God and my mother, you know, just as a, you know, in my childishness, you know, it would be so much better if I had my father alive than you, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But I was very, um, you know, I was eight and I, I wanted to be I did not want to be like my mother who was crying constantly and I just sort of like so uh, rejected that group that I just you know kind of shut down emotionally um, so it, I, I feel like I was failed in many ways by the people around me as a child but um, you know the story isn't over yet, and it was like about two or three years ago when I went to my pastor's wife for counseling on a different matter. That you know, in the course of getting to know me better and, and, and probing and questioning, she just like opened this door, and it made me realize I had never grieved properly. I had never let myself. I had never known it was okay to grieve, um, and that it was a healthy and good thing. You know, I thought, you know, I'm a Christian. I know he's in heaven. I should just move on and trust God and, you know, kind of thing. So um, it was just, I mean, she was such a blessing to me. But, um, you know, even if you blow it with somebody and you're not there in the moment and you wish you had done better, they're going to continue to grieve and they're going to continue to need that friendship and so forth. And, you know, you can pray for God to give you an opportunity to be there, you know, another time. And it could be, it could make such a difference to them as it did for me. Yeah. Um, you know, when God brought it about, it was just such a beautiful thing. Yeah. One of the things that Nancy Guthrie talks about is when people remember anniversaries. And, um, Obviously, life goes on for everybody else, but for you, you think, how can life go on? Like, don't you know that this has happened? And so with any luck, whether it's death or divorce or anything, to, be, to have a community of people who remind you, yes, this happened. <laughs> yes, this is real. But you've also made it through this moment of, um, again, uh, Sorry, I keep using the children, the language we use with our children. You can do hard things. I mean, this is what we say to our children often. This is hard, but you can do hard things. Um, so I'll give you an example of, of remembering anniversary. So um, the anniversary of my mom's death is May 7th, and we took our children out of school, and we went to the beach because we needed to both celebrate, like the rem- celebrate remembering, but also who she was and what she brought into our lives. And not, not just say it doesn't matter that this is the anniversary. And you can be sad, you can always be sad, but we're going to be together and if people want to be sad, we can be sad, but we'll go to the beach and just be. And so that day, my girlfriend, 
one of them is here, cleaned my house and folded my laundry. They, they came into our house. We weren't home. Um, and <laughs> I walked through, and I was like, like Goldilocks, like, <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> in our home, and had folded our laundry. I knew this because the, there was laundry was folded at the bottom of our stairs, and they remembered, and they did something tangible that I did not want to do. I didn't want to do my dishes. I didn't want to do the laundry. I didn't want to do anything but leave. And they showed up. I mean, and it was like it—it it was honestly one of the most touching nicest things I kept telling my husband this is the nicest thing anybody has ever done and he was like oh I clean the house all the time <laughs> but that they saw me and they knew and I think this is just that deep conviction that we need one another and we need to be able to hold each other's stories we need to be able to remind each other but also say I see you I mean I think really tangibly I felt invisible and muted that's what I felt invisible and muted but to have somebody say I remember this I mean it just really is an act of compassion and a reminder that God sees you Um, and he has given us his family as agents of his love to remind us that God sees us and he does that by having people show up and fold your laundry or bring you cash rolls or whatever it is in a tangible act of love. I think this is where he talks about wise love and courage. Like David Paulson uses these two things that endurance, courageous endurance to keep going and also wise love. Like these are the byproducts of what happens when we grieve well and give language and that you can then extend to other people and to say I've been here and I know that you don't want to clean your house, so I'm going to I'm going to take this from you. So I think that's um, just been a, a helpful thing. And then also in in just the Pauline box, what does it mean to you that your mom? Like, what does this loss mean to you? That has been very helpful for my husband Ben, who really felt like he doesn't he didn't know what to do. Like I was just. Like, I had no words. And so, to be able to say, my mom represented comfort and safety. <laughs> so, these are some areas that you might try to help more in. Um, and he was very grateful because he, he didn't know that. Like, that was just not something that was obvious to him. And I think also just the gift of having a language for grief helps you extend because often what is obvious to you isn't obvious to other people Um, just that invitation of sharing what is obvious to you to the people in your community yeah yeah I don't want to presume that all suffering people have the same practical needs, so yeah. feel free just to speak about your own experience, or if you have knowledge beyond that, that's yeah. great. But what um, you said that grieving people don't ask for help, and that you have to figure out what they need, but then the other part of you thinks, well, you don't want to do all the things that <laughs> grieving people say, you're trying to help, and you're not being helpful. Right. So what are those practical things that, that people can 
too, how can we try to ascertain what those needs are sure. without being offensive and misstepping? Yeah, I think that's really tricky because there's like an unseen rule of what is acceptable and what is not. And I just think that as a Christian, we just have to say sensibilities need to just be thrown out. And one way to do that could be, well, what do I need? Even as a mom, what would be helpful to me in this moment? Because um, we aren't, not all helpfulness will be helpful to everyone. Um, and as Anne Lamont says, helping is the sunny side of control. And so, but I do think of asking yourself, what would be helpful to me if I, you know, lost a child or if I if my mother had died and just being able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes of like this would this would be meaningful to me and you know my prayer group knew that a clean house would be extremely meaningful to me and like it took an hour and they brought their kids and drummed on the trampoline while we were at the beach and um I, I do think there is power in tangible things, um, even if it is food. And um, so I'll give you another example of, of this. So my parents eloped when they were 20 years old, and my dad, like, went from his parents' house to, to my mom, basically. He had never cooked a day in his life. Like, really just, one, I don't think he has... He doesn't, I think now, he enjoys food. But he could also just get so distracted he wouldn't eat. And so there's a woman in their church who's, like, gathered up all these, these airmen. We live, my dad lives near Air Force Base. A single airman and widowed men. And she said, we're going to meal plan and cook together. And we'll plan four meals and we'll cook them all on Monday night. We'll have dinner together. But then you'll all have some cooking lessons, and then you'll have some food for the rest of the week. And they have continued to do this. And I think, I mean, this woman just saw a need. And my dad would never have taken a cooking class. I mean, I just don't think it's on his radar. Um, But I do think of, like, people still need to be fed. Kids still need to be picked up from school. Things need to go to the dry cleaner. I mean, Nancy Guthrie's book um, is extremely specific on ways and even just the power of writing a note, like, I'm sorry that you're hurting, but know that I see you. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind of in relation to yours. Um, my mother died rather suddenly about uh, 17 years ago now. And I mean, I still remember the people who said, you're flying up to New Hampshire tomorrow morning at 5 a.m., we'll take you to the airport, and we'll get you when we fly back. The people who uh, pet set a cat, mm-hmm. um, the people who brought a meal when we returned, um, people who gave money for this, we were just like, college kids, unexpected expense. Um, you know, so it was unexpected for us, but it was unexpected for those people, friends in church, but they were, like, we will make whatever you need happen. So that that um, being available at the drop of a hat um, is, is such a wonderful blessing and not everybody can do that. 
Yeah. And then there's the, you know, the, the long the anniversaries, the ones that you know they're coming around, or, you know, a couple months down the road or whatever. So, um, you know, different people are able to, to step in and meet needs in different ways, but boy, it really um, is such a picture of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's part of the embodiment that Anna was talking yeah. about. Things that you can do that may seem take a little bit of your time, but if everybody does it a little bit, yeah. and I would never have somebody to pick me up and bring me to the airport at 5 a.m., you know, but they were like, we'll do this, you know, kind of like that lady, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. Christy, what was your thought? I was just going to ask, we, we try to um, make sure that we don't shield our children, mm -hmm. they're three to ten, mm -hmm. from the pain and difficulty of real life, mm -hmm. and death, we talk a lot about death with them as well. Um, we've, I've never had a death in my family ever, mm -hmm. and so I, I don't know that for, for us, and my kids have never experienced any kind of death. Um, so what happens in our church, when it does happen in our own family, what are ways that our children can help provide comfort or these practical things, um, even when they're very young and don't have a full understanding? We, we do want them to train now. For when, I mean, for not just for when they will serve, but we want them to serve even now. So, what are say in our church family? Mm -hmm. What are ways that children can be involved that I guess developmentally appropriate for them, and also not not a bother to yeah. people who are suffering to have kids around? Yeah. Well, I'll start with sort of my own experience. Our, I think, kids are curious about death. They should be. I don't think you should shield your kids from death, and I think the people who are suffering want to ask or want to answer the questions that they are asking, and I don't think it's a bother. Um, my son, who was seven at the time, one night was very upset, and he said, can I ask you something? And I said, yes, you can ask me whatever. And he said, what does it feel like to have your mom die? And I was like, no one has asked me that. And, like, he just wept and wept. But he was so afraid to ask because he didn't want to hurt my feelings. And I think for to tell children, your questions are not going to hurt people's feelings. And also just, I think, again, Nancy Guthrie's book is extremely helpful. It's in with children of, like, can you tell me something funny about your mom or something like that? I mean, with death, it's different than some like a, another, you know, I think it's specific to what the loss is, but to invite kids into the narrative and the story about the life, it does acknowledge that it, it did happen and it was real. And um, even now, so my mother was had a very dark sense of humor, and I think because she had this scope of 20 years where she was dying, she became just funnier and darker, which was a relief to a lot of us, but also an exposure to my children that we weren't quite ready for. But um, when we would see her, and we saw her a lot, um, and the girls would get really overwhelmed, my mom would say, well, everybody dies. And I think that just made sense. Like, oh, 
I mean, it did make them sad, but I don't think they think that everybody died. I don't think they thought everybody died, or they hadn't really even explored that idea. She also just had a funny way of also saying, but we get to live now. And and not letting death take away your joy. And she also, I mean, she would say this in horrible ways, like, you don't know if I'm going to die of cancer. I can get hit by a bus tomorrow. I'm like, mm, that might not have been the most helpful thing to tell my very anxious 10-year-old that we could die from getting hit by a bus. But to, to let them know that life, we get to live now. And um, that God, God has, we have a duty to delight. And this is my mother would say. We have a duty to delight. Um, she loved just delightful things and she was very whimsical and she really did not care what people thought which I think for children is a wonderful thing Um, and why she lost all of her hair you know she let the kids try on her wigs and you know it wasn't a scary thing she just made it normal and I think um, just sort of making it part of your stories and vocabulary helps quite a lot Um, my mom uh, so she, she, she knew sort of 18 months before she died that she was going to die. She had uh, when it, when cancer went to her brain, they said you have anywhere from six to uh, 18 months. And she had whole brain radiation, which gives you dementia. So it's really a horrible, the hor- the worst thing to choose. Um, but she wrote down, she filled notebooks of stories about her life because she never wanted the kids to forget the stories that she told, and still will read those stories. And at night they'll say, let's have a Nani story, and I'll go and I'll read those stories. And it is such a gift. And I think um, it, was a, she, it was a gift to her to write them, and just a gift to us to have them. Um, but yeah, there's a book that, uh, it's, this is not the title, but... Um, Expose Your Kids to Violence. <laughs> and that's not the title, but it's something like that. Um, of Kids need to know that the world is violent, but it's also good. And that the goodness is from God. And in whatever ways. And I think kids at a funeral bring this life. I think people are reminded of life when children are at a funeral. But it doesn't make it any less hard. But I think it does just make it more real. Yeah, Jacob. Um, so a lot of this has been about how non-suffering can help suffering people. And, and the topic is putting language to your suffering. Yeah. So my question, I kind of want to flip it. Um, how can someone who is suffering and has suffered loss put words to people without seeming needy about how you can help me or what to do and not to do? Like, I, I lost my twin sister five years ago. Monday's our birthday. Yeah. You know, I, I don't I don't like birthdays anymore, mm-hmm. you know, and um, people still want to celebrate. And I heard words like the first year, um, like, I know it was always y'all's birthday, but I want to say to you, happy birthday. That's the last thing I want to hear, mm-hmm. you know. Um, how can you, as a sufferer, make it known, here's 
how you can help or here's things to do or say without you, you don't want attention on yourself you know do, do you understand yeah what I'm asking? yeah um, you have to tell the truth mm-hmm. we're needy people we are meant to be needy people <laughs> and to not I mean that's just the reality we need God we need one another and I think it's a gift to tell each other I need this or I don't need this and I think it brings a lot it just removes some clutter and awkwardness to say please don't do this right now and if this changes I'll let you know Mm -hmm. Um, and I I think it just has to be the truth even if you I mean it's going to feel awkward and it will feel like I'm hurting their feelings I don't think people are going to have their feelings hurt if you said, hey, this is hard for me. I don't want to do this right now. Um, Even just that, like, this is hard for me. I can't do this. Um, And I think it's so different for everyone. I have two older sisters. I have one sister who just wants to talk about my mom all the time and make everything special and do everything that is meaningful and significant. And I have another sister who doesn't want to do any of that. And it's just because they're grieving in different ways and they need different things. And so I think just to say, hey, I'm not doing this, I can't do this, it's not helpful, just sort of gives permission to make you acknowledge that this is real and this is what I need. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the whole, um, like I had said, what does this mean to you? From, from my relationship with my husband to say, I've lost comfort and safety. Like those are the two things that I can say you know, bring, like, I feel like I don't have any of those things, which was not true. But then he could say, well, what brings you comfort? Um, and what makes you feel safe? And and then he could respond in ways that were comforting and that could bring safety. Um, and I, that is a lifelong conversation. It, I think that what does it mean to you that your sister died will change I mean, it changes for me sometimes three or four times a day um, when I talk to my dad or when I talk to my sister. So just being able to ask yourself that. So. That's helpful. Thank you. And, you know, I think people just want to say they're sorry for your loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they want to be helpful and to tell them the truth that this isn't being helpful because what sometimes happens is they think it's helpful and then they continue to do it right <laughs> like, yeah. stop bringing casseroles <laughs> um, or whatever it is yeah, yeah. we can yes an example of what she's talking about been a real gift over the last couple of years when when Michaela has just sent a text to me and our two other friends saying it's an especially hard day and um, it like keeps it at the forefront of my mind that this is a constant undercurrent for her um, rather than <laughs> sort of falling prey to forgetfulness and being about well, should I do something you know taking something personally that's not personal yeah. or you know anything like that and to realize it's, it's an, an act of hospitality on her part mm-hmm. to say, I'm sharing this with you <laughs> again. And um, so that's been helpful. Um, it's, it's not really 
And paying, I think, as as you know, co-laborers, as people that we share the body of Christ with, we should pay attention. And I think that is just a diminishing trait in our lives: is that we don't really pay attention um, to one another. We don't pay attention to ourselves. Um, if, were you at Philip's lecture this morning? Philip did a lecture. on basically paying attention um, and and noticing and um, I think that we are we are required to as Christians to pay attention and to notice um, but also to be honest and to say hey this is hard it doesn't go away Um, yeah I think part of it is that we have lost this because we don't live in the same small town anymore, that we're so transient. We're not committed to people. We move every three years or whatever. Um, I mean, when I, my parents live in a small town in California, there's 30,000 people. And when I go to visit my family or my dad and my sisters, people at the grocery store will be like, I'm so sorry your mom died. I'm like, I don't know these people, but they know that my mom had done. I'm like, this is like what we should be doing. I think, you know, I, I think I've probably told you this. I, for the first year of my life, I felt like wearing a button that said, be nice, my mom just died. (laughs) (laughs) Because I just felt like, like, how could people just continue to live and my mom has died? I mean, just the weight of that. Um, and I think just again being honest with people like I'm crying because my mom died I said that to several people on a plane from California to Massachusetts of you know the flight attendant brought me a bottle of wine because I was crying and I said my mom died and she's like well I'll bring you two bottles (laughs) like acknowledging I think just acknowledging again and again and I know this is hard and I I see you um, yeah I don't know the a whole cultural I think 
so many other cultures do this so well of just um, like the dance of grief of like there is a, it's a marked thing like this has significance for you um, but I think again we are so uncomfortable with our emotions that that it isn't like we can't cross that line but yeah yeah and I think and obviously Sarah knows this I have it is taking quite a lot of work internally <laughs> to find an emotional vocabulary because I I don't really do well with emotions I'm like okay we're going to just keep going um, but to be able to invite people and I have I have felt a deep sense of God's faithfulness in ways I have never felt and in his presence and in even in my anxiety I have felt like there's been a hush of anxiety as I have been able to articulate the emotions of faith but I do I need lots of help and so this is why this has been very helpful because there's lots of practical things and I feel like I need practical help children significantly to sort of let my emotions catch up with me um, just in a very tangible way I I have to do this both just so I don't quickly move to anxiety and anger because those are anxiety and anger would probably be the things I go to um, when I'm feeling sad and then just to recognize in sadness I go to anger and anxiety and to be like actually I'm just sad today um, and that it doesn't have to make sense for it to matter that I am sad. And, um, you know, there was several years ago, and still people still hold on to this, five stages of grief, Dabda. Um, and she, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, came back and said, this isn't for grieving people. This is just for dying people. This is not something people should use to sort of measure their own recovery or their own... Um, way that they feel like they are doing better or worse and I don't think people have caught up to that that it's actually not for grieving people it's just for dying people that's a primary thing for dying people um, and so to be able to be surprised at my sadness and not get mad at myself like because that would that is typically what I think has happened in the last year is that I'm mad that I'm sad which makes no sense like 
I have to allow space to be sad and be able to say I'm sad. Does that answer your question? I was just exploring. I just kept on having visual, and so I just wanted to talk about it. Yeah. No, but that's, that's teaching me about myself, too, about what you're thinking, about waking up to have time to just group what it is that's you for that day, kind of. I really understand that. Yeah. 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 Because otherwise, I think that I think we've just I have created an environment that I can quickly just like oh I don't have time for that I have to do this so even like hospitality being hospitable to myself and to my emotions means making space for them in my day um, and I have um, on my phone the hours six nine noon three six nine but not midnight. So I have a bell that rings, and it's just an interruption to my day and to the praying hours. Um, and I've used this also just sort of like a check the facts sort of reminder of like, how am I feeling? Do I need to tell someone how I'm feeling? Do I need to tell my spouse how I'm feeling? Um, and this is just a way that I have sort of developed my own emotional vocabulary because if I didn't do that, I would just be angry. Which is no help to anyone in my family because everybody else sort of shuts down. And I'm an Italian, and Italians get angry and they get loud. <laughs> and nobody does well in our house when I get angry and loud. So, yeah. Um, but also, like the acknowledgement of, like, well, I have to go grocery shopping. So that might mean that I cry through the grocery store. I still have to go grocery shopping, and I'm. I'm allowed to feel sad, and that's why I really wanted to wear a button. My mom just died. <laughs> I'm crying over oranges, you know, like, but the freedom to be like, I can still do the normal things and be sad. I still can fold the laundry and be sad, um, and not just sort of spiral down into my own self-pity and, you know, watch shows all day long. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreeconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.